in J.K. Rowling's sixth book in her well-known series, she mentions this mission that Harry and Professor Dumbledore go on. It's a special mission, but he only lets Harry go with him on one condition, that he does whatever he commands him to do, no matter what it might be. And so Harry agrees, and after some difficulty getting to this place, they finally reach this little island in the middle of a dark lake within this very dark cave. And what they find, there's a stone basin, and it has some liquid in it, and it's, that liquid's concealing what they're after, they're trying to get. <clears throat> and they can't figure out how to get it until Dumbledore finally realizes that he has to drink the liquid. And as they kind of go back and forth about the safety of this, Dumbledore does admit this, this could be fatal, though he's confident it won't be immediately fatal. But he reminds Harry of what he promised, that you're going to have to do you promised to do what I commanded you to do. And he makes him promise again to do this, this one command. That he will promise to make Dumbledore drink all of this liquid. No matter what he decides, however he responds to this, he's, he's going to make him drink it to the very bottom. So Harry reluctantly agrees to do that and Professor Begins to drink. He drinks three cupfuls, drinks a fourth, and then he staggers. He starts to recoil. He doesn't want to do this. He starts saying, I don't want, I, don't make me. And Harry keeps his promise. He tells his, his beloved professor, you, you can't stop. You have to keep drinking. So he hands him more and more cupfuls. And, and Harry's repulsed by what he's doing. He, he does not want to be doing this. To, to force this person that he loves to drink this cup. When he knows that it's, it's life-threatening. But he keeps his promise. And Dumbledore's yelling the whole time, No, and make it stop, and I can't. And Harry keeps handing him cupfuls. Dumbledore begins pleading with Harry, Please, I'll do anything. And he keeps giving him more drinks. To the point that Dumbledore wants to die. And Harry finally has him finish off this cup. And they get to the very bottom. And... It works. They, they did what they needed to do. They get to this, this thing that they're trying to get. They complete their mission. Now stories often have characters that are flat. That, that there's no growth. You don't see any growth. They're just the same person the whole time. And Dumbledore in these, these stories very often is very flat. He's just, he's just the way that he always is. This is one of those rare occasions where you kind of see a little bit of a rounder version of Dumbledore. And he you see that he recognizes that he's not this person that doesn't need any help. He's human. He needs help. And he knows he needs help enough to have Harry come along with him. He knows that he's not going to be able to handle this mission on his own. And so he brings Harry there to help him finish this task. And, and that is a very, very important thing for us to realize. That you can't do everything by yourself. Now, self-reliance does have its place, right? I mean, there are certain things in adulthood that you have to do on your own. But the key to being a mature adult is to recognize when self-reliance is foolish. When you can't do something on your own, where you know you need help. And that's not just helpful in physical maturity, that's helpful in spiritual maturity. But there is a difference. When it comes to obeying our Lord, there cannot be any self-reliance. 
Jesus told his disciples around the same time that the story that we're going to look at takes place in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do a little? Nothing. So we have to understand that about ourselves. You know, we cannot do anything that God wants us to do without his enablement. And when we forget that, we always fail to do what God has called us to do. So in this morning, this passage this morning, we're going to see our Lord facing the greatest test in his earthly life. And his disciples are about to face a test as well. So what we see in this passage is actually a comparison between the two. You have a comparison between two forms of reliance. There is self-reliance, and then there's prayerful reliance on the Father. So when we are spiritually self-reliant, we ignore God's word. But we don't have to do that. We can follow Jesus' example. Jesus was not that way. He was prayerfully relying on his Father, and he was able to embrace God's will. And that's what we need to do. Embrace God's will no matter what comes our way. And that's what we're going to see again this morning in in Matthew 26, which you can turn there. Verses 31 through 46. What we're going to see are two ways to face a test. We can face it with self-reliance that ignores God's word. Or like our Lord, we can face it with prayerful reliance that embraces God's will. And what we see is first the example of the disciples. And they face their test with self-reliance that ignores God's word. So as the disciples head to the Mount of Olives, which is situated just east of the city, Jesus drops a bomb on them. Tells them in verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. Now that word translated fall away, it's been used a number of different ways in Matthew. Uh, It's been used for both the Pharisees and Jesus' hometown. As they stumbled over Jesus or because of Jesus. It was also used in the parable of the soils. Used with the person who receives the word with joy. But then when he faces persecution he falls away. And most recently in chapter 24 and verse 10. Jesus mentions that in the future his disciples were going to face persecution. And they would respond this way. They would fall away. And not only that they would betray each other. So in every case, falling away is a negative response to Jesus. And Jesus gives proof for what he says. He quotes Zechariah 13, 7. He says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd. and The sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, in Zechariah, this is a little bit of a mysterious prophecy. But you can, as you study it, understand that it is a messianic prophecy. Earlier, Zechariah had mentioned these wicked shepherds. But here, the shepherd's different. This shepherd belongs to God. He says that in this very verse, he says, it's my shepherd. That's what the Lord says. And he refers to him as the man who stands next to me. That's very close to suggesting that this is God's equal. But paradoxically, the Lord in this verse says that he's going to take his own sword and strike his shepherd. And and Jesus deftly shows in his mentioning of this verse that what God has done in that prophecy is promised that he is going to strike his own shepherd. And then it says that the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
Now, the shepherds in these prophecies in Zechariah are the kings of Israel. And so the sheep are God's people. And what the prophecy goes on to explain is that God's people would be struck, they would be cut off, so that two-thirds of them would, would be done, would be gone away. They would no longer be a part of that people, but a third would remain. There would be a remnant. And that remnant would be refined so that God would once again say to them that they are his people and he is their God. It's fascinating is the way that Jesus applies this. Because the sheep, people of God, and Jesus is referring here to his disciples as those sheep. Zechariah is written at the end of the Babylonian exile. People have been scattered. And yet, Zechariah is talking about another scattering, another dispersion. So how does that relate to what we're seeing here and what Jesus is, how Jesus is applying it? Well, when God's shepherd, when the Messiah is struck, his old covenant people would be scattered. Not all who were under the old covenant would be reconstituted as part of that new covenant people. And Jesus had just talked about, he just instituted the Lord's Supper to commemorate that he, what he was about to do was establishing that new covenant. And the way that Zechariah is talking is under that new covenant, that God is going to refine these people so that they are his God, so that they are his people, so that each of them knows the Lord. There would be something different about them. So after Jesus is struck, after his body was broken, after his blood was poured out, the people of God would then be made up of only his disciples. Jesus said already, though, that they would all fall away. So being struck by his father, Jesus would experience that all alone. No one would stand with him when he was arrested. Nobody would stand with him at his trial. None of his followers would be at his right and his left when he was crucified. So he would be all alone. The nation, God's old covenant people, would reject him and even his followers would abandon him. He would be alone when he was struck. And God's flock would be scattered. Shepherdless. Because they rejected their Messiah. But Jesus gives a very hope-filled statement in verse 32. He says, but after I am raised, I would go before you to Galilee. They would not be like the Pharisees or the people of his hometown. They would not be like the person in the parable who falls away. Jesus would lead them once again. So even though the majority of those who'd been God's people would abandon him and, and remain abandoned. They would reject him. Jesus would still be their shepherd, his disciples' shepherd. Now, Peter doesn't seem to hear any of that. All, all he seems to hear is this claim that Jesus made that he's going to fall away. He doesn't hear the prophecy in Zechariah that this was going to happen. He doesn't hear Jesus' promise of his resurrection. And, and as usual, he just very quickly responds. He speaks up. He says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I like the way that William Hendrickson put this. It's like Peter saying, you know, Matthew, the former publican, might perhaps stoop down to that low moral level of abandoning the master in his hour of, of affliction. 
My former fishing partners, James and John, might also conceivably fall into that trap. In fact, I wouldn't even put it past my own brother, Andrew, but not I. I'm different. I'm set apart. I am stronger than them. Jesus, you could be right about the other disciples, but Peter is convinced it's inconceivable that he would do what Jesus has just said. Now, Jesus' response is swift. It's chilling what he says in response. Not only is Peter capable of doing this, Peter is going to respond in an even more wrong way. He's going to respond even more poorly. Tells him in verse 34, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You're not just going to fall away, Peter. You're going to even deny that you know me. So Peter takes that escalation and he ups the ante himself. He goes on to say, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He's saying, you told me to pick up my cross. And if that's what it takes, I would be willing to do that. Now, the way he actually says this suggests that he still doesn't quite believe Jesus is going to die. What he's, he's basically saying is, even in the extreme case that you would really die, then I would, if that really happened, I would I would rather die. I would die rather than deny you. So not only does Peter not listen to Jesus and what he has to say about himself, but he still thinks he knows what's best. He still thinks what Jesus is saying isn't going to happen. And then there's a second reality that's also typical of the disciples. Uh, Peter isn't just speaking for himself here. He's saying what the others are thinking. And so you see their response in verse 35. All the disciples said the same thing. They're claiming the same commitment. Wait, we agree with Peter. That's exactly how we feel. Now, Matthew's emphasized a a few things in the way that he tells the story. There's some subtle ways that you can add emphasis to things in Greek, partly through the, the tenses that you use. And so what Matthew's done is he's highlighted Jesus' words in verse 31 and Peter's words in verse 35. Jesus has just said what in a short while is actually going to happen. It's going to take place. And he's demonstrated his authority on this in two different ways. He has quoted divinely inspired prophecy. It is written. And then he's added to that, I truly, I tell you. Those are ways for him to add emphasis to the fact this is certain. It's going to happen. But Peter doesn't believe him. And he even doubles down. Now, on what basis can Peter tell Jesus that he's wrong? On the basis of his own fortitude. You know, Peter believes in himself more than in God's word. Doesn't matter if it's in the Old Testament or or Jesus, the son himself giving this word. Peter is self-reliant. He doesn't, doesn't even respond with any, any reluctance here. He doesn't even say something like, may it never be. Like a prayer to say, you know, I, God, I hope this is not true. He's, he's absolutely confident. I know myself. I know what I'm capable of. I would never do this. Look, if God's saying something, it's going to happen. You can bet on it. What Peter's doing, it's like, it's like he's looked at the lineup to the Kentucky Derby, and he's placed his bet on the horse that's already scratched. I mean, the horse isn't even the race. He does not have a prayer. There's no chance 
that he's going to win the bet. And yet he, he's confident. How can, you, how can you be that confident? How can you bet against Jesus? Pride. An inflated view of yourself. Now, this would be tough. What you're hearing is there are no options. This is what's going to happen. That would be a difficult thing to hear, absolutely. But that's not put forward as if to say, so Peter, it's not really your fault. Peter, as we're going to see, is, is completely responsible. In fact, even right now, we're seeing reasons why this will absolutely take place, and Peter is absolutely responsible for it. They're going to fail, all of them this night, because they're self-reliant. It's the very thing Peter's expressing. So even by his denial, the way that he's denying, the way that he's saying this, he's, he's just confirming what Jesus is saying. It's going to happen. So we're not encouraged to be like Peter. So brothers and sisters, this, this, what Peter does, is a surefire way to fail. If you want to fail in the Christian life, follow Peter. You will not succeed in obeying God if you rely on your own strength. You have to recognize your weakness. You have to recognize that you, you need help. Like Dumbledore, you know. Recognize it. He couldn't do his thing alone. But it's a little bit different than that. You, you actually have to realize your need to an even greater degree. Just like Jesus had said, apart from him, you can do nothing. So the strength to follow Christ, the strength to do what you are called to do, isn't in us at all. It's outside of us. The strength is God. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. That's the way Paul puts it. So if you want to fail any test, then you ignore what Scripture says about yourself. You rely on yourself. That's not how we want to face a test. With self-reliance that ignores God's word. How do we want to face a test? With prayerful reliance that embraces God's will. So Matthew views these next events in verses 36 through 46 as very, very important. Uh, the things I mentioned about how you could emphasize a passage, well, he, he increases the frequency, which is rare in Matthew. But in these verses, he, he increases his emphases so that he said, this is absolutely important. And this is one of those occasions where we get to see the full humanity of Jesus. Matthew doesn't tend to say much about what Jesus was feeling. There's a few places where he kind of mentions his emotion, but it's rare. But what we, we see here is Jesus' full emotions. We see it in full view. Jesus took his disciples to this place called Gethsemane. And the name means oil press. And even today, when Ken and I were there, there are, there are olive trees that are at the, especially lower um, on the Mount of Olives. But, Back then, there was evidently a press. This was probably a cultivated area where they had olive trees, and they had a press there to press out the olive oil immediately when it was harvested to make sure and get all of it. And John 18, too, says that this was a common meeting place. This is where Jesus would go with his disciples, so that's why Judas is going to have no problem finding them. But it's here 
that Jesus takes his disciples and he tells eight of them to sit at a certain place while he goes off to pray. But he took three of his disciples, the three remaining disciples with him. Judas is gone at this point. And Mark mentions each of them by name. But Matthew doesn't. Matthew only mentions Peter's name. For James and John, he merely calls them the sons of Zebedee. What he's doing is focusing our attention again on Peter. This is the one who spoke up. This is the leader of the group. This is the one who said that he would not fall away. He would end up doing far worse than the others, and yet he said he was the strongest. So Matthew wants us to keep our eye on Peter. And then Matthew says in that in the presence of his disciples, Jesus begins to be sorrowful and troubled. And those words express extreme turmoil. This is very, very difficult what Jesus is going. And then Jesus elaborates on what they could see. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. He's saying exactly just, just how, how terribly difficult this is. This sorrow is so much, so difficult, it's metaphorically as though he were dying. The the expression does not mean that he was dying. It's describing intensity. It's actually a a statement found throughout the Old Testament as well. To say "This this is so difficult, it feels like you're dying. Luke may have added his own medically astute perspective on what Jesus was going through by mentioning his, while he was praying, like he prayed, like drops, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's what his sweat was like. So in that state, Jesus tells his three companions, Terry, he says, remain here and watch with me. And that word translated watch, often it's used with prayer. It's going to be used that way in verse 41. It means to stay alert. It's, he's not saying just stay physically alert, watch out, see if, if Judas comes. He's talking about being spiritually alert. And the only way you can be spiritually alert is by praying. We don't have any natural ability, any any natural capacity to be spiritually alert. Prayer is the only recourse we have to to do this watching. It's the only way to to be on our toes when we need to be spiritually. This this test was going to be coming. And so Jesus wanted them to be spiritually alert for him, with him. But the reality is what Jesus was going to face was going to be faced alone. And so even now as he prepares, he needs to be alone with his father. And that's what he goes and does. So he goes a little farther, fell on his face and prayed. That's the posture of great humility. It's the posture posture of desperation, of absolute dependence on his father. His face is in the ground and he prays, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. That's the plainest way you could put his request. Sounds a little bit different in verse 42, but really these are saying the same things. Uh, just It's going to be put slightly differently, but Jesus is repeatedly making this request. And what he begins with is his unique relationship with his father. He, he has a, a relationship that no one else shares. So it's one thing in the first century for a Jewish person to say, our father. It was quite another thing for him to say, my father. Father, even earlier in chapter 11, Jesus had been very clear. He has a relationship with the Father that no one else has. Such that Jesus could say, no one knows the Father except him. So on the basis of that relationship that Jesus makes this request. 
And he, what he's asking for is this cup to pass from him. So what cup? What was the, the, the cup he most recently mentioned was the cup that represented his death. In the Old Testament, there were ways that you would use a cup to be an image of something, and that image was of God's wrath. So if you drank a cup in the Old Testament, it meant you were going to endure God's wrath. And that is what his death was. So remember in, in Zechariah's prophecy in chapter, or in Zechariah 13, mentions that God was going to strike his shepherd. Isaiah 53 mentions something similar. It mentions that the servant of the Lord was esteemed smitten, stricken by God, and afflicted. But then the next verse says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was going to take the cup of God's wrath for his people. Just as Isaiah said. But now he's on the doorstep of this. He's, he's right at the very brink of suffering. And, and so he's asking for it to pass from him. He says, if it be possible. Now that doesn't actually mean that Jesus thinks it is possible. Jesus is expressing this in his humanity. Very important for him to have this if. He's not going to ask the Father for something impossible. And so in his humanity, he's reflecting his ignorance of knowing what is possible and what's not possible. Now, he does know what Scripture says about what he needs to face. He, he knows what he has himself foretold four times clearly with multiple other illusions. So he knows what's going to happen. And yet, he still asks, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Why? When you know what's going to happen, why? Because he knew what this would mean for him. Yes, it would mean a torturous death. But there's more. It would mean that his father had turned his back on him. It would mean that Jesus stood in the place of sinners. It would mean that the one who knew no sin, not a single solitary sin, would become sin. We have no idea what that would be like. We're sinners. We sin every day. Sin is an ever-present part of our reality. Jesus never sinned, not even once. So he experienced perfect, perpetual fellowship with his Father. Unbroken. But at this moment of suffering, he knew that that fellowship would be disrupted. So in his humanity, Jesus is expressing the fact that he does not want that to happen. And you know what? It would be a problem if he didn't express that. A human who wants to suffer is deranged. So even in Jesus expressing this, he's, expressing, he's illustrating even here that he is functioning the way that a human should function. And what he does is he takes this agonizing concern the only place that he can take it. He goes to his loving father and he expresses it. He expresses his concerns, his cares, his, his struggle, his sorrow. 
And notice what he follows with immediately, though. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So his priority is on the Father's will. Now, there's a difference between the two uses of this word will. Jesus is referring to his own desires, what he wants to happen when he says, as I will. But the Father's will refers to what he had chosen as the best course of action. There's a sense in which the father does not want the son to suffer. He does not want the wicked to perish. And yet, the course of action that God has taken means that he has chosen, means that the wicked will perish. So it's, sovereign, it's God's sovereign will that Jesus is referring to here. But the will that he's referring to himself is his own human desires. Now, they're not sinful desires, but they are natural human desires. But in his prayer, what Jesus says is that he's determined to do whatever his father wants. So in that, their wills are perfectly aligned. Jesus likely had prayed more than just what we read here. It seems to describe an hour's time in verse 40. So if that was a literal hour, then this is just telling us the gist of his prayer. But at any rate, he he takes a break from praying to visit with his three disciples. And he finds them sleeping. Notice who he directs his words to in verse 40. Matthew says, and he said to Peter, so, could you not watch with me one hour? Again, Matthew is, is directing our attention to Peter. Not every gospel mentions that. The you here is plural. Jesus is talking to all three of them. Evidently, he is looking at Peter as he says this. This is the one who said he would not fail. The one who claimed to be superior. So then Jesus redirects them. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into, into temptation. He's not the only one who's going to face a test here. So they needed to be spiritually alert for themselves. And what he does is he tells them to pray what he told them to pray back in chapter 6. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's the same kind of prayer. They were not going to be able to withstand their test apart from God's empowerment. Now, Jesus already said they're going to fail. They're not going to pass this test. They're going to fail. But they're still responsible in their failure. And so Jesus does what a loving teacher does. He tells them how they could keep from failing. Pray. And he gives a brief explanation in the form of a proverb. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's not an excuse. Jesus never intended us to take that and say it as if to shrug and say, well, yeah, I can't do it. Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. That's not what that is saying. He's saying that our humanity is weak. That even our best intentions cannot be accomplished In our human weakness alone. We need to pray. That's what he's saying there. Why do you need to pray? Because your flesh is weak. So it's not an excuse for their sleeping. It's an encouragement for them to pray. Peter had said he was strong. He could do it. Jesus is saying, you're weak. You can't pray. That's what you need to do. So Jesus goes away to pray again. This time, Matthew records it slightly differently. 
Mark says this, he's saying the same words, but Matthew reveals this particular expression here. He says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So it's clear there's kind of a progression in it. He's expressing the greater likelihood this is not going to pass. He's going to have to face this. He's saying, if there really is no other way, your will be done. Again, that's identical to what he taught his disciples to pray. Absolutely identical. Your will be done. That's the same priority. It wasn't just their priority. It's not just what they needed to pray. He had the same priority. The Father's will took precedence. He, not only that, but he, he wanted what the Father wanted. That was his priority too. And he goes back to visit with his disciples a second time and he finds his fleet sleeping again. His, his reprimand didn't do anything. These were self-reliant men illustrating their true strength. They had no strength. Now, I'll admit, it's hard. When you're tired, when your eyes are heavy, that's absolutely difficult. But what you see is there's, there's not even a crowd for help. These are self-reliant men who don't even realize how important prayer is, how much they need to pray. So Jesus then goes away. He went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Now think about that. Jesus already taught them perseverance in prayer. So what we have here is no doubt he's still troubled. Jesus is still troubled by this. His future suffering is still bothering him, and so he keeps praying. If you're like me, you might be tempted. After you pray, it doesn't seem to be helping. Just say, what? That didn't help. And move on. That's not the way we work as humans. Our emotions don't just change. We struggle with them. They change slowly. So that means we keep praying when we're struggling. We keep demonstrating that we, we recognize that we can't change ourselves. So we keep, as we notice we're struggling, we need God's help, we keep praying. We keep relying on him. We keep casting our cares on him. Every time we struggle, we pray. And for as long as we struggle, we're praying. When Jesus got back to his sleepy disciples, listen to what he tells them. He says, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The first part, it could be a question. It could be translated as a question, as one commentator put it. In that case, it would be something like, have you been sleeping for the remainder of the time and getting your rest? And that word see could be translated in that more biblical behold. He's, he's emphasizing that what he said was going to happen is actually beginning to happen. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then he adds, rise, let us be going, see, or again, behold, my betrayer is at hand. Notice Jesus isn't surprised. Remember what he's been praying. But he is resting in his father's will. And so he knows that what's happening is his father's will. That what his father has planned to happen is what is happening. And again, that's, it's clear that that is what Jesus wants. So when he experiences it, he recognized this is what he wanted. He wanted what the father wanted. And this is what the father had planned for him. So 
Even as he's struggling with this emotionally, he fully embraced the Father's will for him. And what that is, in his humanity, what that is is evidence of his reliance on the Father. The way that he faces this task, the way that he's not surprised. It demonstrates that he's been empowered by the Father through that prayer. In his humanity, Jesus did not rely on himself. He relied on the Spirit. So as he now responds to this situation, he's doing so because he's been strengthened by the Father to obey. To do what his Father had called him to do. This is likely what the writer to the Hebrews was talking about when he He mentions that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And this is how we obey. Through honest, earnest, persevering prayer. That's how we can obey. That's how we can be empowered to face whatever the Father brings our way. Whatever we face, understand, whatever you face is the Father's plan. And the only way to face it, the only way to be able to embrace what the Father brings is through prayer. So we need to follow Jesus' example. Whenever we're struggling, for as long as we're struggling, we are praying. Whether we are about to face a test or whether we are in the middle of it. And it's also good to follow Jesus' example here in getting alone. You know, where there are no inhibitions, you can just lay it all out there. You can be honest. This is not a, a practice of trying to tell God what's really happening. He knows what's happening. This is a practice that helps us express our dependence to God. It is good for us to express our dependence on God. So if you're struggling, I just have one question for you. Are you praying? You could say, yeah, Kurt, I am praying. I can only say, keep praying. That is still the solution. That's still what we're called to do as we struggle. We face tests with prayerful dependence, prayerful reliance that embraces God's will. There is something more here, though. There's something unique in what's happening. Jesus is not just a good example. He is also the reason why we can approach the throne of grace in the first place. And what he is doing here He is doing so that we could pray. Jesus is experiencing something that no believer will experience. He experienced it in order that none of us who trust in him would experience it. So his prayer reveals this is the only way. It's the only way to save us. Douglas O'Donnell, he He included in his commentary the story of a little boy named Johnny and his sister, Mary. Mary was suffering from a disease, and she needed a blood transfusion, and couldn't just receive it from anyone. She had a rare blood type, and she also needed blood from someone who had already recovered from the disease, and Johnny's a perfect candidate. Johnny, two years earlier, had suffered and recovered from this, and he was the same rare blood type. And the the doctor tells them that This is the only way, only way that Mary can recover. So the author writes, would you give your blood to Mary? The doctor asked. Johnny hesitated at first, but with his lower lip trembling, he finally said, sure, for my sister. Soon the children were wheeled into the hospital room, Mary pale and thin, Johnny robust and healthy. 
Neither one of them spoke, but then their eyes met. Johnny grinned. His his smile faded as the nurse inserted the needle into his arm and he watched the blood flow through the tube. When the ordeal was almost over, Johnny's shaky voice broke the silence. Doctor, he said, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated and why his lip had trembled when he agreed to donate his blood. He thought the doctor was asking for all of it. Yet out of love for his sister, he was willing to give it. Now, O'Donnell points out the difference between Jesus and Johnny. Johnny's confused. Jesus understands. There's no misunderstanding with Jesus and what he was going to face and what he was doing. So as beautiful as this little boy's willingness to die for his sister, it pales in comparison to Christ's willingness. Like Dumbledore, Jesus had a cup to drink. And even though I didn't mention it, they're both doing this for the sake of others. Both stagger at it. But how much greater is Jesus' willingness to drink his cup dry? O'Donnell again points to a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon put it beautifully when he said, the whole of the tremendous debt was put upon his shoulders. The whole weight of the sins of his people was placed upon him. Once he seemed to stagger under it, Father, if it be possible, but again, he stood upright. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When he put his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both hands and at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. For all his people. He drank it all. He endured all. He suffered all so that now... Forever, there are no flames of hell for them, no racks of torment. They have have no eternal woes. Christ has suffered all that they ought to have suffered. And they must, they shall go free. Do you believe that Jesus did that for you? So much greater than, than even Johnny's willing sacrifice. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. For everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him, who believes that he is their king, their Lord, and believes that he is the one who saves them by his death and resurrection. Believe that. You are not as strong as you think you are. You cannot make it to heaven by anything that you do. You're overconfident if you think you are. You need Jesus. And when you don't recognize that, your self-reliance, I mean, it's horribly misplaced. Jesus is the only one who can forgive you and bring you to God. So believe that and follow him. Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we... We are greatly humbled by your example. We recognize how often we are self-reliant. How often we think we can, 
we can handle things well enough. How, how often we lose sight of just how important prayer is. So we look at our lives and think about how often we pray. Yet you, Son of God, you yourself, so greatly illustrated, strength of relying on your Father in prayer. Help us. Help us to see by your spirit to see that we are weak. Keep us from rushing headlong into things that we cannot do in our own strength. That we would be those that pray. Pray for ourselves. It's obviously good for us to pray for others. It's good for us to pray for our needs and concerns. And yet, you taught us this priority, the priority that says that your Father's will is what is most important. That your Father's glory is what is most important. That what happens to us is not the priority. That our sicknesses, our struggles, our concerns are not the priority. Help us to pray that way. Keep us from treating you like some cheap genie that does nice things for us when we, when we are in trouble. Help us to recognize the priority that you taught us. So that when we are struggling, we can pray like you. We can pray with an honesty that acknowledges our concerns and our difficulties and our cares, but we can do so and rest in whatever happens knowing that your Father will do what is best. Help us to rest in that, knowing that it is only because you went to the cross that we can do this in the first place. We can only boldly approach this throne of grace because you are seated at the Father's right hand. Help us. By your Spirit. And anyone here who has not seen what we've seen as we look at you, who has not seen what you have done, has not really seen it, really understood it, really seen and felt the weight of it, that you would open their eyes, again, by your spirit, to really see it, behold it, to recognize it. Not so they have some experience, not some, some goal to have some existential experience where they, they're moved. Help them to truly see it. So they stop living for themselves. So that they can, they can be restored to a relationship with you. So that they can follow you. So they can know you. So that they can love you. Ask for your grace, your mercy, by your spirit. Amen. <clears throat>